Hi, everyone. I have some big news that I want to share with you before we get to our podcast today. I wanted to let you know that Path 11 TV is actually launched. However, we are going to be throwing a party on November 11th at 11 a.m. with Suzanne Northrup. She's an evidential medium, and she's going to be talking with us about mediumship and after-death communication on November 11th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then after that, Suzanne has agreed to give people who sign up for a yearly membership a free gallery reading over Zoom. So the readings necessarily aren't guaranteed, depends on how many people sign up. Um, But once you sign up for your annual membership for $59, we are going to email you the Zoom link to enter into the gallery reading over Zoom with Suzanne on 11-11 at 12 p.m. So we are really, really excited about this. And we decided to discount the annual membership by 40% off the regular price until our launch on November 11th. Once November 12th hits, The price is going back up, so I would really love for you to take advantage of your annual membership for $59. With that, you are going to get free access to a gallery reading with Suzanne Northrup, and you can check out her website if you haven't heard of her yet, SuzanneNorthrup.com. And uh, if, if you sign up before November 11th, you will be able to enter into that Zoom room with her, and hopefully you will get your own reading. So head on over to Path11TV.com. You can register for that annual membership now for $59 and start watching all the content that we have. There's some wonderful stuff on there. I know you're going to enjoy it if you love listening to our podcast. Oh, and by the way, If you've just been listening to the podcast, we have the video um, podcast for Path 11 over on Path 11 TV. So you can't see them anymore on YouTube, but you can watch them for free at path11tv.com. All right, guys, let's get to our show. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Path 11 podcast. Our guest today is Andrew Seaton, and he had his spiritual awakening not too long ago, back in 2018. And he wrote a book to make spiritual awakening very simple. And that's actually the title of his book, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple. So he was experiencing a lot of changes in his consciousness and way of being in the world. And throughout 2017 to 2018, he was very very focused on living the insights and practices he describes in his book. And during 2018, life had him in a period of relative retreat from the world, and he experienced a flood of dreams about his spiritual awakening. And about soon after that, he began assisting others with awakening themselves. In September of 2018, Andrew's spiritual awakening began in earnest with a beautiful dream followed by energy flows flowing through his body. I have to say I read this book. It's not entirely long, which for all of us who are really busy, um, that's a great thing, but it was so practical and extremely helpful. We're going to talk a lot about us being the observer of our thoughts because most people that I speak to, they are flooded by the thoughts that they're having. Their their grip on the mind, what Andrew talks about this, needs to be a little bit lighter. And I am hoping that you guys are going to get something out of this today and and that this podcast is going to help you with your thoughts and to help you become the observer of your thoughts. And I think I would like to invite him on right now. Andrew, welcome to the Path Love and Podcast. Thanks, April. Great to be here uh, chatting with you. Yeah, so I I loved in the beginning of your book how you had a friend that kind of planted a seed for you about your dream world. Uh, Would you like to tell our viewers and audience about that and how this kind of started? This small little seed began part of your spiritual awakening. Uh, Well, 
I don't know if that was the absolute beginning because I think that's when I came out of my mother's womb was was the beginning or maybe even before that because I've kind of always had this sense that there's something more to life that is commonly talked about and, you know, kind of um, assumed to be what human existence is. I always had a sense there was something deeper, something more subtle, a different uh, kind of a consciousness that, but it eluded me for a long, long time. And the, what you're referring to there about somebody who suggested this is going back th- uh, nearly 36 years, actually. Um, uh, when I was about 30, yeah, a friend said, Hey, have you ever uh, thought about, you know, asking for a spiritual guidance in your dreams? And I never had thought about it at all. And so I decided that night I would try, you know, and, uh, uh, so I just kind of said, you know, whatever's out there, <laughs> you know, universal intelligence, you know, if there's anything that I would benefit from adding to my life, you know, for my highest good, please show me, you know, and if there's anything that would be helpful to to let go from my life, show me. I describe in the preface of the book that that night and the next night and the third night in a row, I had dreams telling me that the meditation practice that I was actually very <laughs> dedicated to at that time had been for about 10 years was not going to take me where I wanted to go, you know, and I was that kind of intellectually kind of committed to it. It it took those three nights in a row of very short but very direct and clear uh, dreams saying, this is not helpful for you. It's not what you think it is, you know. After the third day, I did stop and never never went back to it. Um, and you also, in your introduction, you know, you said that my spiritual awakening began a couple of years ago, 2017, 2018, and it kind of did in its kind of, um, you used the word in earnest, I used the word in earnest in the in this. Yeah, it did really start kicking in, <laughs> you could say, at that time. But it, it wasn't anything out of the blue, that's for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, all my adult life, you know, since I first left high school and went to college, I've been digging around, you know, for uh, trying to find what are the what are the understandings that are most helpful about human consciousness and um, what are the ways of realising what some uh, few people kind of describe out of their own experience is possible. Uh, but very, it's not in the common conversation and not in the common experience. So all that time, all that searching that I did, both in my personal life with all of its ups and downs, I was digging around that whole time, last several decades, and uh, in my professional life too, mostly most of which was in the field of education. After a while, I started digging really deeply into educational theory and educational psychology, educational philosophy. What's the nature of learning? What's the nature of human knowledge? What's what's the nature of human intelligence? How does intuition and creativity, you know, tie in with it, and how does it all work? And I looked into so many things. This is what I'm getting to. The kind of spiritual awakening has been happening for three or four decades in a way. Because with each thing that I looked into, whether it was a practice or an idea or a philosophical perspective or or whatever, uh, I realised sooner or later that it was really where it's at. Each of those realisations, it was kind of part of the waking up. It was part of the the waking up out of disidentifying from uh, thoughts and concepts and disidentifying from what I think is truth with my conceptual mind and discovered that time and time again, that wasn't adequate to the task. Yeah. And, you know, I would say I am where you were kind of maybe 30 years ago, right? So I'm still digging, I'm still studying, I'm on the path. And I've talked to so many people on this podcast that seem to have reached the spiritual awakening. And I'm like, when is that going to happen for me? I've had (laughs) glimpses in meditations where I felt that oneness. I felt this beautiful, unconditional love. It was like, unlike anything. And I held on to it for as long as I could. And, you know, life kind of comes in and I remember that time, but I'm still a little confused as like, what is the 
supreme spiritual awakening that happens? Like what is different when, like you said, yeah. you're, you're studying and you're collecting information and you're on that path and you have this great awareness. And then what is it, what's that spiritual awakening mean? Like what yeah. snaps into place? Well, I love that question. I really, I, and I, I just feel so much welling up within me as you ask that question because it was it was such a question for me for decades and decades, you know. And even after I began to be more obviously kind of, you know, <laughs> having this experience of, of waking up, and we'll talk about what I mean about that more in, in a second, but even as that was happening, I was still mentally mentally wondering, you know, is there going to be some big flash of light, you know, or, or, you know, what's it going to look like, you know, and there were still kind of um, seeds laid by different things that have been written and different things that have been spoken by different uh, teachers that I'd come across over many years that made me think that, you know, there was going to be something really <laughs> special, uh, perceptual experience, you know, whatever. Um and uh, I want to say to you and to your listeners, that's not where it's at. That's not what it's uh, what it's about. And as I say, even as I began to re be, have a lot more peace in my life and, and 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 start to feel differently in my day to day life, I was still wondering whether the, you know is there something more to come? You know that'll be the big the big fireworks. <laughs> and and finally, I've I've been able to let that go. That's not what spiritual awakening is about. Um, and the other aspect of this that I want to say to you and your listeners is, you know, you said you're kind of where I was 30 years ago, and I know what you kind of mean by that. But at the same time, I want to say to you and your listeners that all of what you aspire to in terms of the spiritual reality of who you are and your your oneness with the spiritual essence of life is that now. There's nowhere to go. And you might remember, April, a couple of times in the book, I, I make some comments about even just words and phrases that can sometimes trip us up. And one of those is spiritual journey. And we can we can so easily just hear that that term and fall into a mental pattern of thinking like it's a long, long path to kind of get you know, different times in my life, I also wondered whether maybe it's a, a many, many more lifetimes before I experience that and all of that. But I want to I want to say that part of this thing about spiritual awakening made simple that I wanted to to really express out in the world is that it's all there now. The writing of the book Spiritual Awakening Made Simple was to make it a very experiential self-discovery kind of process for the reader so that they realize in the reading and also I suggest at the end of the book read the book over and over and over because with every reading you see things differently notice things different that you didn't notice the first time discover things in your own experience that you didn't discover the first time and each kind of uh, time that you you read it, you're peeling away, as it were, you know, more of the layers of the onion, as they say. Not that this is a complex process, it's dead simple. It's just a case of the layers of the onion that you're peeling away are the ways of thinking about the world and about spirituality and about all sorts of things that have been the things that have been getting away in the way of our being awake to the presence that we truly are, the essence of who we truly are is, and this is the only the only way and only sense in which I mean the word spiritual. I use the word spiritual just to suggest that there's something more subtle that is the essence of us and the essence of life that's beyond our conceptual mind, beyond our conditioned mind, and beyond our body. And even right now in this moment, your listeners can. Uh, do something, experience something that gives a, a, a hint as to what this is, a, a little taste of what this is. You'll remember, <clears throat> uh, April, that in the first chapter of the book, 
I uh, ask the reader to think about when they were 10 years old, did they feel like they were them? When they were 15, did they feel like they were them? When you were 20, when you were 30, when you were 40, did you feel like you were you? And people kind of, yeah, of course I did. You know, people nod their heads. And, yeah, you know, I always felt like I was me. And yet then if we look at it, you know, of course our bodies changed in lots of ways. You know, if, we've been, if we're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years or older, we've seen lots of changes in our body. We've seen lots of changes in the, the assumptions that we make about life and the things that we believe about who we are, about the world around us, about people, about men, about women, about, about everything, you know. Our thoughts have changed. A lot of our assumptions and beliefs of, of life have changed. Our roles in life have changed. One time we were a grade school student, then we maybe were a high school student, maybe a college student, maybe we went to work quite early, we were a shop assistant or we became a carpenter, we became a nurse, then we changed jobs after five years, got sick of it or got made redundant, then we became a different kind of a job. So at no point could these roles be who we are because we've always felt like we were who we are and yet the roles have changed. So all of our experience has been changing, changing, changing. But there's always been this sense, I've been there, I've been me. And that real us, that's the spiritual essence of who we are, this awareness, this formless awareness, it's in the background of our thinking, of our perceptions, of our emotions, that we is mostly kind of we never even notice because we're so identified with the form. We're so identified with the body and the things around us, the people around us, the objects. We're so identified with the thoughts that come up because in our waking moments, they just come and come and come and come relentlessly. A lot of people just don't even think about their thoughts. They're so they live out their thoughts. And we, sometimes when you suggest it, that somebody might like to just think about their thoughts, they think, oh, really? <laughs> think about my thoughts? No, they're just coming. They're there. They think that's who they are. But no, we're not. We're the observing awareness behind thoughts. Yes. And I was hoping you could just go a little uh, deeper into that because I love the part where you said we have such a tight grip on our minds. And can you talk about how our minds really, we tend to get over-focused on the mind, what the mind is thinking, and how do we begin to separate from the mind and become that observer? Yeah. Well, the first thing um, is to have a an understanding of how that comes about as we grow up from babyhood through childhood, how we take on this identifying with our thoughts about the world and about who we are. Um, we don't sit back and look at them as a, there's a thought over there. We kind of live out and play out our thoughts and we're so identified with them, we, we assume so implicitly that they're the way things are, that they that they get reflected, that the way we think things are get, gets reflected in the way we experience our life. It actually helps to create so much of what we experience in life. Life becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, a reflection of the assumptions, the conceptual assumptions that we form about who we are and about life. Now, the exercise I just suggested your listeners might like to do of thinking about when they were 10, 20, 30, 40, they always felt like they were them. That's the beginnings of a nice simple way of realising that they are an awareness that's always been there in the background, the noticer of the thoughts about life and about who they are, the noticer of their experience, the noticer of their perceptions, the noticer of their emotions, the noticer of their body and the physical world around us. Another thing that you, your listeners can do, again, even right now, kind of involves a little bit of a pause and that when you go to air with a podcast or an interview, you don't like silence in the middle of it. We will just keep it nice and short and people can maybe try it again after the interview. But something that you can do is... Just stop for a moment and ask yourself, I wonder what the next thought to pop up in my mind will be. And just give it a few seconds, as long as it takes, for a thought to pop up. And most people have a, a very surprising kind of a sense of noticing that there, there is this silence observing, waiting for a thought to pop up. And for many people, it's the first time that they kind of really have this clear sense that there's me and there's thoughts 
But progressively, as you do that, and there are various other little exercises that I d describe in the book, you'll increasingly have this sense and 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 uh, have stay with you this sense of of the silence and the stillness of the observing awareness that you are as your experience unfolds and as thoughts come and go. Now. Uh, again, um, April, just before we went to the recording, we were talking briefly about this point about thoughts. Do you want me to go there now and talk about the different ways that we tend to, because we are so identified with our thoughts and because they tend to get played out in our experience of life, it's really the things that bother us most are our thoughts. Now, you might say, well, actually what bothers me most is the various emotions that I find coming up from time to time. They're the things that are really challenging for me. And <clears throat> the interesting thing about emotions is that they are not a response to what we're experiencing. And a lot of your listeners will say, well, hang on a second, that's ridiculous. Of course they are a response to what I'm experiencing. Someone says this, or I see such and such happening, or I'm, you know, such and such, blah, 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 or I look at something that reminds me of something I did in the past, and suddenly I feel emotion. I might feel anger, or I might feel guilt, or I might feel whatever, all sorts of things, anxiety, or depressed, or whatever. But no, it's not what we experience that triggers our emotions. It's believing a thought that pops up in the mind, especially a thought that something is bad or wrong or insufficient or not how it should be. Then comes the emotional reaction. So it's not somebody speaking to us in a particular way. It's not us seeing something happen in the people and events around us or on TV, or it's not us looking at a photo and thinking of 10 years back when I had a big blow with my partner or with my parent or whatever. It's not that that triggers the emotion. It's having a thought pop into the mind that says, what that person said to me or what I'm seeing happening over there on the TV or with those people over there, or what I, re I was reminded about what happened 10 years ago, that was bad or it shouldn't be that way, or we sh it's that, those sorts of things shouldn't be allowed to happen, blah, blah, blah. And then comes the emotion, and it sometimes can be very strong. It overwhelms us. But this is the surprising thing, and this is the thing that's the seed of incredible liberation, is to notice that it's not what you experience that troubles you emotionally. It's a thought that you have and believe about what you perceived or what you experienced. Now, uh, because people are so assuming that, you know, what's troubling me uh, is or what I'm experiencing as, as my difficult day or my difficult life is these thoughts are coming up all the time that, that are just nagging at me or torturing me or whatever. So <clears throat> there are three ways that people commonly try to alleviate their suffering. It's actually quite, you know, for many people intermittently, perhaps intensively not feeling happy with life. And some people, a very large amount of the time feeling quite distressed or unhappy with themselves and with life. Whatever it is, the way we tend to try and deal with that is to, how do I deal with these thoughts that are terrorizing me, you know? So there are three things, three approaches that people commonly use which don't work. Now, the first is to try and escape the thoughts. So this is very, very common. You know, we, we distract ourselves. If I can just get distracted from my thoughts, if I'm thinking thoughts, they're not bothering me, you know. So we go and watch television or we go and go bungee jumping or we, you know, we go and do extreme sports or we – lots and lots of things 
all sorts of things can be used as this really ultimately a strategy for avoiding our thoughts. It might be recreational drugs, legal or illegal. It might be hobbies. It might be just working hard, hard, hard because it keeps me busy. And while I'm busy, I'm not having to think about my life and who I am, you know, or whatever. So, but the problem is with trying to find peace in your life by distracting yourself from your thoughts is because you can only distract yourself so much of time and damn thoughts are always right there as soon as you stop that activity that you've been engaging in as a diversion. So distracting yourself from thoughts doesn't work, except momentarily maybe. And this is why, as I say in the book, many activities can be actually quite addictive. Because They're addictive because they momentarily give you a sense of relief from the, your troubling thoughts and emotions but they never last very long, and so you, you can never get enough of them. So you go back to them, back to them. I need more of it. I need more of it. Distracting yourself from troubling thoughts isn't a solution. Another thing that people will try is to try and hold back that thought or lock it out. But that doesn't work either. In fact, there have been you know scientific experiments done you know to to show that this is, doesn't work, and a lot of people have kind of actually heard of this. Although a lot of people to adopt this method. But a lot of people have heard that when you try to suppress a thought, you just make it more likely to arise. Some people have heard that phrase, what you resist persists. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very true because you wouldn't resist something unless you thought it was real or an issue. The problem is then if you try to resist it and you really have strengthening your belief in reality of that thing, of that thought, even if it's just a thought. You, if you're trying to block it out, it's because you think it's an issue. It's real. Um, and the more real you think something is, the more likely you are to experience it. So it just it doesn't work. If, you, if your listeners try maybe after the interview to not think about something in particular, not think about a red balloon, for example, just for 10 seconds, try not to think about a red balloon. And they'll try and try and try. And with every little effort, there'll be the red balloon saying, that's what I don't want. That's what I don't want. That's what I don't want. So, but it, <laughs> and it's kind of fun and funny, but it's kind of serious too because a lot of us are actually trying to use that method to get rid of the thoughts that keep popping up and nagging at us, you know, but you, it ultimately won't work. And the other thing, and this will maybe surprise many of your listeners, that doesn't ultimately work is this very common attempt to focus only on the good thoughts. If it's my troubling thoughts that bother me, all right then, no problem. I'll just put them over there and I'll focus on only the good things. I'll think about only the good things in my life. Uh, today I've got these three things happening that I really like, you know, blah, blah. Now, there's no doubt that it, it does feel nicer to, to to think positive thoughts or about good things in your life than about the things that or that you label bad. It sure does momentarily. But the problem is that because we're living most of the time now through our conceptual mind, that's kind of our that's almost who we think that is who we think we are, and that's that's our our faculty of operation. Now, the, the conceptual mind is a, is a realm of opposites. You can't have good without bad because good is only by definition the opposite of bad, the lack of bad. So the more you focus on good things, the more reality you are still giving to at least the potential things to be bad. Focus on these 10 good things I like about my life. You might worry about some things that are popping up that aren't so good. Or if I like these three things especially about my life, oh, my God, what if somebody did something to take one of them away or reduce one of them? That would be terrible. You know. So we straight away into the bad again. You can't have the good without the bad as far as the conceptual mind goes. So those three ways of dealing with thoughts can work momentarily, but ultimately they don't solve our problem for us. Distracting ourselves, trying to suppress our thoughts and focus only on the positive thoughts. But the funny thing is, and this is what I discovered 
most clearly when I dug deep in my educational research into the nature of human learning and human knowledge. The surprising thing is that no conceptual idea can ever be proven to be true. Now, this will t it knocks the socks off many people when they first kind of hear that. What do you mean nothing, uh, no conceptual idea can ever be true? We can't ever prove any conceptual idea to be true. We can prove ideas to be false, but we can't prove them to be true. Now, since the things that trigger our emotions are the thoughts that arise and we believe, if they arise and we don't believe them, we don't give them a second thought, we don't even give them any credibility whatsoever, they don't bother us. So it's not only the arising of a thought, it's the arising of a thought and believing that thought that something is bad or that I am bad or a situation is not how it should be, that's what triggers the negative emotions. But look, if we if we realise, and I explain in a, in a simple and methodical way in the book how this is the case, how our perception works in a very distorted and selective way. So the things that we think are true about who we are and about the world around us and people around us can never be shown to be true. If, if what's troubling you is a thought that such and such is bad, and then you go through the simple procedures I explain in the book to realise, wow, you know, actually when I think about it, there's no way that I can know for sure that such and such a thing that just happened is bad. In fact, if I ask myself, is it possible it could lead to something that I would like, often I can say, well, yeah, it's possible that it could turn out to have some good outcomes. When you start to realise, do this on a regular basis, question the thoughts, the things that we assume to be true, the things that we assume to be true about who we are, for example, or other people or the world around us, and realise that we can never know for sure that they're true. A wonderful thing happens. The troubling emotion that was triggered by believing that thought, that, something, that such and such is bad, the emotion dissolves. And here's the lovely thing. Here's the spiritual awakening thing that goes along with that. What's left when you question a thought and realize that ultimately you can't know that even that, short, that thought has any real substance or, or it's not true? It's not reality. What's left? The peace-filled observing awareness that is who you truly are. So there are these three ways that people commonly, very commonly, try to deal with troubling thoughts. We try to distract ourselves from them. We try to block them out or, or suppress them. Or we try to focus on just the nice thoughts, the positive thoughts. Momentarily, they can feel good but they don't ultimately solve our problem of troubling thoughts, emotions that are triggered by those thoughts and our general suffering in life or dissatisfaction with life. But there is something simple we can do instead of those three things. And this is what I discovered and came to realise most clearly when I was studying deeply into educational psychology and philosophy, looking at what is actually the nature of this knowledge that we love to think of is so wonderful and, and so important. You know, our conceptual mind's knowledge that we acquire about who we are and about the world around. What's the nature of knowledge? I discovered a very surprising thing. Uh, and your listeners will find it very surprising too, I, I guess. Most of them will. And that is that no conceptual idea can ever be shown to be true. And yeah. people say, oh, come on, what? that's ridiculous. Oh, come on. No, yeah. it's the case. Uh, we can't know, know that any conceptual idea is true. And I, in the book, I simply and uh, systematically explain how human perception works, how we construct a kind of uh, um, uh, an abstract mental conceptual interpretation of who we are and the world around us, what people are like, what all sorts of things are like. Any of this knowledge that we construct is not reality. It's not a copy of reality. It's ultimately not true. It may have some provisional instrumental value, yes. And I'm talking even, you know, the knowledge of the world around us and 
computers and <laughs> materials and things like this, you, people say, well, yes, we, we, know, we know lots of things. No, we don't know them. We have certain working models about how certain things work. For, I mean, one example that I've heard of is electricity. We, we use electricity to our great benefit, but they, they tell me that we don't even really know what electricity is, actually. We just know that in certain situations and contexts, you know, certain things operate in certain ways, and we learn to harness those, and we say, yes, we know about you know electrical power. Sure, we, we conceptually know a lot about it, but we actually don't really know what it is. Now, let's put aside the practical stuff, which may have its instrumental value in life, and it certainly does. It's useful to have, even though it's not ultimately true. It's got instrumental value. It's like a good example or analogy slash example is a map. Now, a map can be very, very useful to have, but a map is not remote the territory that it represents. There's a world of difference between a, a map I might have a buy from buy from the news agent and f unfold, you know, to look at what, where's what, where's this place, where's that place, where's that river run, blah blah blah. But it's not remotely same as the actuality of the landscape that it represents. And our knowledge is like that. Our conceptual knowledge—it's a very rough kind of provisional construction, abstract conceptual construction of what things are like. Now, this is important because all of what we thought who we are generally is our thoughts. We've got conceptual ideas of who we are. We've got a self-concept. We've got a self-image. It's And it's not, <laughs> it's not at all who we are. No conceptual idea can be proven to be true. So if I have a thought that I'm stupid this is one example I give in the book. <clears throat> if I have a thought that I'm stupid, it's actually easy when I look at it to notice, well, hang on a minute, was there ever a time when I thought I was clever? Or someone said to me, wow, you were pretty clever to do that. Or you did very well in your spelling test. You're a bright little girl. You're a bright little boy. You know, everyone can think of lots. Well, yeah, actually, there will been lots of times when people have said, "Yeah, you did well to do that." So, I'm stupid can't be a true statement about who I am because there've also been times when I thought I wasn't stupid. I was clever, and other people have said you were clever. And also, then, if I think about it, well, they're both just concepts, not am. And anyway, who's having that thought? Who's, when this thought arises, oh, I'm stupid, who's noticing the thought? Hmm, oh, uh, yeah, I'm the awareness noticing a thought that has popped up. That's the other interesting thing is about troubling thoughts, to notice not only that we can't ever show that they're true, but we don't choose them. If we chose them, we wouldn't choose them. <laughs> if we chose the troubling thoughts, we would choose them because they're not nice. They they trigger these un unhappy emotions. And that's why we go to all these lengths that I described of how to deal with our thoughts because they just pop up, these thoughts. So actually, we don't choose them. They're nothing to do with who we are. And they're not even anything to do with what the world really is. So who am I then if I'm not the concepts that I've had, that I've built up in my life about who I am? Who am I? You're the awareness, the presence, the wakefulness, the wakeful consciousness that notices your experience. This feeling then, as you go through these simple processes, is very experiential way. Yes, there's a foundation of some understanding, but it's basically a self-discovery thing. Wow, these things, each time you question a thought that's been troubling you, 
or a thought that hasn't necessarily been troubling you habitually pops up, you notice and you use the, these little strategies that I describe and you, it, it, within seconds you dissolve a thought, an emotion that got triggered by the thought and you come back into feeling just full of peace and contentedness, life begins to take on a very different character because who we truly are beyond the mental construction that, we, that we've had about who we are begins to kind of come more to the fore. It sits there as this very comfortable feeling, peace-filled, contentment-filled, sometimes playfulness-filled, sometimes love-filled, but all the time nice-feelingness-filled <laughs> uh, sense of beingness, sense of presence. And not only is that a beautiful way to live your life, but if we also then, I was going to say, consider the idea, <laughs> we'll consider it as, a, as an idea right now, but it becomes the experience. This presence, which is our essential nature, is not different from the essence of life that runs this whole world that we live in. Consciousness is what runs everything. You can call it universal intelligence if you like, but we don't want to get too caught up in conceptually defining this thing is. There's this awareness or consciousness which is the very essence and nature of life. So the essence of me is not other than the essence of life. And we humans have this gift that we can become awake consciously awake to this oneness that we are with the with the intelligence that organizes and orchestrates the whole of life. So as we start to see through what I describe in the subtitle of my book, see through the mist of the mind, all this conditioned, automatic thoughts that pop up, not all of them are troubling, but nevertheless, we're, we're seeing the world and, and who we are out of these conditioned patterns. But as we increasingly see through the patterns and begin to more be more be more awake to the beings that we actually are, we are then the expression in this world of life, of consciousness, of the universal intelligence if you like. And that is truly being who we are. Unique, yes, but it's only a paradox for the mind. Unique, yes, but also this that is who we are. We're not this separate entity that I define as being male, 65, you know, was a school teacher, was a taxi driver, was so many other things, was married, was you know, that's nothing to do with who I am. These are just thoughts. They're just concepts. One moment they apply, another moment they don't. They're part of my experience, were part of my experience. Only part of my experience now as a thought might pop, in, up, pop up in my mind, and it's just made of nothingness. It's just a figment of imagination, actually. So most of what we think of as who we are and what the world is is actually a figment of our imagination. But we don't need to get too caught trying to unravel that, you know, conceptually. No, it's very simple just to come back to these simple processes that I talk about in the book about, and I describe. <clears throat> now, I just want to say to your listeners this uh, uh, April about the title Spiritual Awakening Made Simple. I looked for so long through my life, four and a half decades of adult life, I've been looking to try and find this that I sensed that was out there. And yet it's simple. And that's why I wrote this book. So for your listeners, it doesn't have to be four and a half decades of trying to figure things out now. If they feel inspired to, to read this book, then read it over and over as a, as a, to use it as a manual rather than just you know, a source of interesting thoughts. No, no, that's not what it's intended to be. It's a manual to help unravel and this awakening of who we are. So along the road of my life, I came across various things that I talk about in my book. But as I came across them, one isolated thing over here, one little practice over there, 
they weren't really helpful. Not that helpful anyway, not sufficiently helpful. But eventually, in 2017, they kind of coalesced in my beingness, in my consciousness, and I put together some simple, if you do this, 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 and this together, this is how they kind of fit together. And when they fit together in this way, wow, they really give the awakening the traction that I was looking for for so long. And that's why I wanted to write this book, because I finally, finally found a way, a complicated way that was also surprising to me. Oh, my gosh, here's how it fits together. And it's only really when you put it together that it becomes very doable, workable, makes it realistic to just have that awakening. Yes, Andrew, thank you so much. And I think, you know, like you said, your book is more like a manual. Even this podcast is something that I think people can listen to over and over again, and they'll get something a little bit different each time they listen. And like you said, I think that this is something that is so simple, yet we make it very complicated. And my takeaway, I'm not sure what other listeners takeaway uh, will be from this, but I think I'm going to just spend more time because I haven't really um, just kind of being that observer and maybe even, you know, continuing to remind myself that I am the awareness, not the body. You know, I'm the awareness, not this person per se. I am the awareness, not all of these things that are around me. And really um, spending time just even when I'm walking outside and just noticing that, I think that is the big takeaway that I get from, you know, our conversation today and from reading your book. Yes, yes, really, really, really um, right in the last chapter, I give a couple of sort of strategies of pulling things together. One is a kind of an acronym that I won't go into now because it would impoverish the power of of that of that acronym, which comes deliberately at the end of the book because it's like here's an acronym that shows you how to quickly remind yourself of all of what you've experienced through the book. But but even in the book, just before I get that part, I say the formula for a spiritual awakening is simple, and you've just described. Uh, April, one one half of that, which is to be the noticer. The, so the, the formula is simply disbelieve your thoughts plus be the noticer of your experience, including your thoughts, equals spiritual awakening. So the other aspect that I would just then add to what you described, which is so central, it's all about being the observer, is also to be the questioner of your thoughts. Now, that doesn't mean I'll put aside three weeks and I'll write out every thought that I have had in my life or I'll write, every, write out every thought that I typically have and I'll question them all. No, don't make it a mentally systematic kind of thing. Let life be the orchestrator of this process of questioning your thoughts because as things come up, either as a troubling thought or as an emotion or just an uncomfortable feeling or a lack of feeling satisfied or comfortable with your life, then look at what's the thought behind it, then question that thought. Notice that there's no way you can know it's true. Be th then you're really, oh, wow, it dissolves. You come back also then into being the noticer of the thought that arose, to being this beautiful feeling of calm, presence, and that's being awake. You'll remember, April, in the, right early in the book, when I talk about how we are already this consciousness. We don't need to cultivate our spiritual self. That The idea of spiritual development, it can be a real trap. It's already there, fully formed. The, the infinite essence of who we are is already there. And we wake up to it as we see through the mist of the mind. We question our thoughts. We come into back into presence. And that already then in that moment is the peace-filled awakening that people are looking for, not 10 years away. And then just doing that over and over again as your life unfolds, the more focus you give that process of responding to your life experience in that way, the more 
complete and the more you know the more of the time that you're you're asleep the more of that time is filled with this increasing peaceful presence and the more your life becomes an expression of that presence or that consciousness which is life wanting to express through each of us as individuals but having a damn hard time when our mind is so locked down by our identification with our conditioned thinking our conditioned interpretations of the world out there beautifully said thank you andrew and can you let our listeners know where they can get a copy of your book and also your website oh yeah thanks um well the book is available pretty much everywhere now it's on amazon um most online bookstores uh online you can get it both as an ebook uh, and as a paperback but if your listeners are usually ebook readers I would urge them to actually buy the paperback because as we've been talking about a few times in this discussion, it's really this book's really intended to be a manual. It's so much going to be more helpful to you if you can have it there physically with you, you know, we can take it with you where you go maybe or just, you know, it's there on the table, blah, blah, blah. It'll be so much easier than just to dip into um, many times, read it many times and then, just pick it up many times as, as the need or the inspiration arises. Good to have a physical copy. It's also a physical store, the uh, paperback is. And uh, I have a website where uh, people could read the uh, preface and introduction of the book. Um, there's also an area there where I talk about uh, one-on-one uh, counseling and mentoring for spiritual awakening sessions that I offer people through uh, online conferencing. Uh, people can uh, subscribe to a newsletter and there's some comments on the book there and that sort of thing. Uh, that uh, that website is awakeningmadesimple.org. Spiritual is not in it in, in the name to keep it nice and short. Awakeningmadesimple.org. Andrew, thank you so much for being a guest on the Path Loving Podcast. And thank you for making this so simple. <laughs> so I hope <laughs> you have a wonderful weekend. And thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, April. Thanks very much for the invitation to chat with you on your podcast. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show. And don't forget to head on over to path11tv.com. Grab your annual membership for $59. Remember, that is 40% off the regular price. Once November 12th hits, the price is going to go back up to the regular price. So I really want you to take advantage of our launch deal of $59. You get over 75 hours of content that we have on there. And if you register... Now, until November 11th, we are going to email you a private link to the Zoom gallery reading with Suzanne Northrup. And if you would like to watch Suzanne and see what she has to say before the gallery reading, you can tune in to Facebook Live, YouTube Live, or watch it on path11productions.com. She's going to be speaking for about 30 to 45 minutes on November 11th at 11 a.m. We're going to take a short break, and then you are going to head on over to your Zoom room and sit there in the gallery, and hopefully Suzanne will choose you and give you a private reading to connect with your deceased loved ones. So head on over to path11tv.com. Take advantage of the annual membership. Remember, the monthly membership does not give you the Zoom link. You have to purchase the annual membership in order to get into the gallery reading Zoom room. All right, guys, take care.